Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 121 of the Feeling Good podcast, and today with another episode of uh, Ask David. Hello, David. Hello, Fabrice. We're a few miles away from each other, and we have been having some uh, listeners sending us questions, and they've been uh, kind of piling up uh, lately, so uh, it would be a good idea today to go through some of those questions. Here's what I have uh, in front of me. The, the first one is from Dylan, who's asking you, do you believe in Freud's secondary gain in which patients resist change because they benefit from their symptoms? We, and you can chip in on this one too, Fabrice, yeah. I'd love to yeah. hear your, your take on it. Sure. But, but certainly there are people for whom that's true. If, if somebody is coming to a therapist to get treatment, but also wanting the therapist to fill out a form which gives the person disability payment, certifies them for disability, this is felt to be a, uh, an ethics violation, a conflict of interest, because if the patient is coming to the therapist to get money to, for depression, whatever the claim is that you're disabled for, then that person will not be able to to recover because that's going to mean the loss of uh, of income, and so that would be a, a clear cut example where people are are gaining in, in an obvious financial way from from their symptoms, and that is a powerful form of resistance that will sabotage treatment, and that's why it's not even ethical to treat a patient who is requesting certification for, for, for disability. And when patients used to come to me when I was in uh, clinical practice in Philadelphia, I asked them right at the top of the session, uh, when I first met them, if there was any uh, lawsuits that they were involved in or any disability claims that they were hoping that I would uh, support them in. And if, if the answer was yes, I made it clear to them that, that I, I, I could either that, that I can't both treat them and certify them for di disability and that they'd have to go to someone else for, for that. And, and that uh, whoever was certifying them for disability, I would not speak to, I would not provide copies of my, my records. And that uh, uh, if, if I was subpoenaed, if my records were subpoenaed by some attorney, that I'm legally obligated to refuse the subpoena. And, and so if, if you come to me, it's only to get better. And if you get better, I won't tell on you. And if you remain depressed, I won't certify that, that either. And that solves that, that problem. And about half of the patients who came to me who were looking for disability certification got angry and said, well, I don't want to work with you then. And, and that made it clear that their, their motive was to, to, to get money, not to get well. And about half of them said, well, I, I want to work with you and, I'll go to your colleague that, that for, for the disability evaluation because I, I do want to get better. But that can happen. Now, all that being said, 
we, we put a huge emphasis on resistance busting techniques and team therapy, and we have an entirely new way of uh, thinking about uh, resistance for depression, anxiety, uh, relationship problems, and habits and addictions. And we no longer use the concept of, of secondary gain, at least in the treatment of, of depression and anxiety. Uh, the, the resistance uh, that we see, that we melt away, is all positive. That we, we believe that resistance, when some patients are coming voluntarily for treatment and their motive is to get better, still many of them will, will resist recovery. And it's because the symptoms are in a, uh, a manifestation of what's really beautiful and awesome about uh, you and your core values. And because there are real benefits to, to, having, to having these, these symptoms. I, I spoke with a woman just, just on Saturday who was experiencing what some people call postpartum uh, depression. Uh, and uh, I don't like to call it postpartum depression because it sounds like a disorder of some kind uh, or a biological abnormality. But she was feeling uh, depressed and, and guilty and ashamed and uh, you know, hopeless and discouraged and, and lonely. Uh, and I won't go into any details because I don't want to betray her identity or you know, confidentiality. But we, when we did the positive reframing, we, we found you know, over 20 beautiful things that her, that her negative thoughts and symptoms showed about her. Uh, showed her high value, showed her, her love for her baby, uh, her just all kinds of awesome things. And she just, her, when we pointed all of that out, her resistance just melted away. And then it took maybe 10 minutes more beyond that to, to have her smash all of her negative thoughts. And she went from a state of, that she's been in for, you know, a couple of months of really, really suffering. To, to a state of, of joy and, and, and really, really jubilation, and, and, and I did too. So, so we approach it radically different from, from the way Freud did. In fact, I don't even know if Freud was the one who came up with secondary game. I, I, I'm just assuming that because that was well, the question. Well, I, I don't know for a fact that uh, he's the one who came up with it, but uh, if he did, I doubt that uh, he had in mind uh, disability claims. Right. And so, uh, if if She's I could add about attention, that some people want to exactly. be depressed because they get attention, and the problem but, is that kind but of formulation. It, it's not. It's not that people intentionally do malingering in order to get attention. It's something that most people who are depressed do not uh, are not even aware of. They they think that their depression is something that they want to get rid of, and they do not realize that it has some benefits. And that's what I think is what the secondary gain is, is those benefits. Yeah. If I'm depressed, well, I'm going to have, you know, perhaps people around me who take care of me, uh, like you said, get attention. Um, I, I'm relieved of some responsibilities. Um, I get to, to find a, a reason for not uh, doing the things that I believe I should do. So there's all kinds of benefits like this yeah. that uh, ref are referred to by secondary gain. Yeah, that's right. And, 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 and this I found is what, what you call outcome resistance. 
Yeah, but we, we don't include any of that in outcome resistance anymore in team therapy. The problem with those formulations is while there's sometimes a grain of truth in them, often there's no truth in them, but they're always very patronizing and condescending. It's a way of putting the patient down and you're, you're such a baby, you're trying to get attention. And it's, I've never seen that be, be helpful to anyone. And that's why in team therapy, at least I have gone to a totally positive view of resistance. So you don't think that uh, ever there, the depression or some other uh, mood state is maintained because the, the patient finds uh, a, uh, a comfort in it. Well, there's a grain of truth in, in all of these things, uh, and, and you can always find cases for whom that would be true, but, but the problem is that much of the time, most of the time, the formulation isn't particularly true, and in addition, it's, it's patronizing, it's insulting to the patient, it's, it's, a, it's a put down, and that's why I've developed a radically new and different uh, way of viewing resistance, that you can melt away the resistance in, with most patients in 20, 30 minutes, and, and then at that point, recovery is usually 10 or 15 minutes away. Uh, the, uh, it, when you show the beautiful things uh, that the resistance reveals and the symptoms reveal about the patient and 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 and, and the and the and the benefits to, to them, for example, this woman was uh, anxious, intensely anxious, and yet she'd had tremendous uh, difficulties uh, medically with the pregnancy and, and and other items as well, and so her her anxiety was really a manifestation of her her love for her baby and her responsibility as a mother and there were things that she needed to to be vigilant about and 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 when when she began to see her symptoms her depression she she had a lot to be sad about and she'd been through a tr tremendous trauma and and, uh, and 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 suffering and, and and struggle and then paradoxically when she began to see that her resistance is, was really a manifestation of what was beautiful about her her whole her, her whole demeanor changed and and it went right right into uh, right into recovery okay shall we move to our next question yes yes so we have a question here from julianne who's asking is seasonal affective disorder sad a real thing now i'll give you my take on it you may have a take on it too fabrice and i have to say that uh, i haven't critically reviewed the literature on seasonal affective disorder uh, but it, it's it's been been around a lot a long time and and the idea is that in the winter time there's less light and that affects the pineal gland and has to do with the synthesis and release of of melatonin and that somehow that that's linked in with with, with depression and then you treat people with with light therapy. They have to sit in, under this bright light every morning uh, before the sun comes up in order to get more light, thinking that that will somehow adjust the brain and, and lead to recovery. My own take on it, and keep in mind I'm I'm a skeptic and a and, and a cynic because when I read the literature about these things, it it just usually doesn't pan out. I think that the that that there there might be a little something to this. But, but not much. And I think that the light therapy 
is a big pain in the butt buying all these intense lights and having to sit under them for one or two hours every every morning. Uh, and I think it has a little more than placebo effect, if if at all. And I'll give you an example because you know I've treated so many people in in Philadelphia when we had strong seasonal changes. And I never found this to be useful or necessary in terms of re- recovery. And, and I'll give you an example. A, a, uh, a high school girl uh, came to me and, and said that, uh, you know, she, she had heard about the seasonal affective disorder and thought she had it because, you know, every September when she went back to school in the, in the fall and the days got shorter, she, she became depressed. And then I asked her, well, like, what, is there anything about school that, that's depressing you, that makes you unhappy? And then it turned out she thought that she wasn't one of the popular people, and uh, she, she felt kind of alone and, and excluded, and, and that was really what was, what was bugging her. And I taught her how to flirt, how to make friends, the five secrets of effective communication, and and she she took to it really, really quickly, and I knew she, I knew she would, and uh, all of a sudden, boys were chasing her and calling her like crazy to get dates, and and she she had t- tons of friends, and and she was in a in a euphoric state, and her so-called seasonal affective disorder disappeared. And so I I don't go for these formulaic treatments and these quasi biological formulations. To me, they don't add much in terms of effective treatment and, and the research behind them is making important contributions to, to depression. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's, 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 it's convincing. I haven't reviewed the research either, so I can't really uh, speak in a very informed way about it. I, I have a very dear friend who uh, every winter you know, does go into a rather um, down and depressed mode. And he did use uh, a, a light box for a couple of years, and uh, he reported that it helped, uh, but only minimally. And as you said, it could be the placebo effect, or maybe not. Who who knows? Yeah, uh, anything what, anything you commit yourself to in order to recover shows that you're motivated. Exactly. Yeah. And my, and my research shows a powerful causal effect of motivation on recovery. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, but yeah, two hours for a minimal effect. Why don't you just come to me for one, two hour session and then you'll be cured? Well, what my friend does now is uh, every February, he and his wife uh, go in some tropical climate uh, for two weeks. And that seems to do wonders for him. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Now we're into secondary gain again. Yeah, That's there we go. Story. Exactly. Well, I like this one. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, that's our point of view, and we all we can do is give our opinion on things. We're not giving the gospel truth, and if if you have some strong, different opinion, feel free to, to write and share that with us. Yeah. Uh, our next one is from Ishmael, who asks us, should I use the daily mood log just when I'm upset, or at the end of the day, or when? Do I have to stop what I'm doing when I get negative thoughts so I can write them down and work on them? I think that's a really good question. Uh, I get this from my clients also, you know. Is this like a, a diary where I have to write on it every every night or is it when I'm upset? So what what is your recommendation? 
Well, I'll give mine after you give yours. I'd love to hear how, how you answer that for your well, patients. What, what I uh, tell my clients is, um, uh, and you know, that may not be what you recommend, but I tell them when you have something that's upsetting you, and that could be all the time, so just pick a time, uh, sit down and, and write down what's going on for you. Take a snapshot of your emotions and thoughts. And if you cannot do it in the moment when it's happening, like maybe you're having a fight with your boss, you know, when you get to your office or to your home and you have uh, time to, to do it, do it uh, as soon as, uh, as you can after the, the upsetting situation. No, that's I what I that's... tell them. Go ahead. I'm sorry. That's what I tell them, yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I, I strongly endorse what, what you just said. And, and when I was uh, doing research on homework as affecting and its impact on recovery from, from depression, uh, what, we, what we saw was that patients who did at least some reasonably consistent written psychotherapy homework uh, re recovered, uh, and, and those who didn't do any, who refused the psychotherapy homework, almost none of them uh, recovered. In fact, I don't think I ever had one who refused psychotherapy homework who recovered. So just doing something is a tremendous prognostic sign. And I told my patients, if you can even do, you know, five or ten minutes with uh, of consistent work with the daily mood log, that's going to be a great prognostic uh, sign. That means you're, you're, you're going to get better. So, so uh, if you know, like what you say, Fabrice, if you're, you're upset, just try to note what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And then, you know, what, later on when you get some time, r write it down, put it into a daily mood log and start working on it uh, systematically. And, and that will, uh, that, that, that's likely going to help you tremendously. Great. Uh, next one is from Abe. Oh, wait, one, one more thing. Oh, Some yeah, people uh, also used to, this is kind of like mindfulness meditation. By the way, I went to a mindfulness meditation workshop at the Burlingame Conference. Oh. And I was not impressed. But maybe this is for... Why not? Where was it, uh, what was being taught? Well, the fellow, I won't say his name, but he's a very famous uh, advocate of, of mindfulness meditation. And the the young woman w w was saying that uh, she, someone, a friend had told her she was meditating incorrectly, and so she, he was holding this out as a live demonstration of the power of mindfulness, and he had kind of prepared her ahead of time, and apparently when she meditated, she would go into a state of euphoria. And then some friends told her that that was incorrect because you're supposed to experience all these negative emotions. And that made her very, very anxious because she felt she was a failure as a meditator. And my first thought was, that sounds like so much bullshit telling someone, you know, you're not allowed to become euphoric when you meditate. But at any rate, uh, he, he had her close her eyes and say things like, how are you feeling? And she said, I'm feeling real anxious. And he'd say, where, where is the anxiety located and she'd say oh it's on my stomach and he'd say well put your hand on your stomach and now allow yourself to feel the anxiety and 
things like that. And then how are you? How are you doing? And then she says, "I'm getting a lot more anxious now. I'm, I'm I think I'm going to have a panic attack." And then he's like, "Where's the panic located?" And 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 she said, "Oh, it's in my legs now." So he said, "Well, put your hands on your legs and you know allow yourself to feel it." And and, and how are you doing now? And she said, "Oh, this is I, I, disgusting. I feel like I'm I'm I'm." disgusting everyone. I feel like the people in the audience are judging me and I feel like I'm letting you down. And uh, and she just got worse and worse and it came, it was just a one hour thing. And it came close to the end. It was about 10 minutes to go. And, uh, and then, you know, he stopped her and then he starts on this big sales promotion pitch for meditation. And, and what I had seen wasn't at all look successful or, or, or effective. And so finally, I just put my hand up. I didn't know if he was going to have a Q&A. And, but, but I just had two questions that were burning inside of me. And, 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 and I, said, I, I said, I'm kind of old now, and you know, I don't, don't get things right all the time. But one thing I, I noticed is that uh, she, your, your patient here, what is feeling worse now and she's also feeling like she's letting you down she's disappointed and ashamed and and you're probably feeling disappointed in the live demonstration and 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 you're not commenting on those feelings and and i thought you said that meditation was about getting into the here and now being real and genuine with your feelings and it seems to me there's an elephant in the room and you're completely ignoring it and as i say i'm I'm probably getting this all wrong, but that's how it appears to my eyes. And then also she was all filled with distorted negative thoughts that would have been so easy to, to, to crush using other, other techniques. Is this the only technique you use? Because you just kept, you, you kept thinking that somehow a solution would come by focusing on her physiologic symptoms, her somatic symptoms. And, you know, sometimes exposure is, is helpful, but there's, I mean, I use tons and tons of, of, of tech techniques and, you know, is this all, is this all you do? And then he went on a, another sales pitch for, for meditation. And, and I was, I was very, very disappointed, but anyway, I, I'm kind of a cynic and uh, I know a lot of people love uh, mindfulness meditation, but what I was going to say, you know, you can do meditation in, in, in daily life. And, and if, if you're really busy and you're having a lot of negative thoughts, you can just track it on a wrist counter like the golfers wear on their wrist and then let it go and continue, continue with, with your life rather than dwelling on that negative thought. This is not one of the more powerful cognitive therapy techniques, but it's been helpful to a few people and something something to be aware of. And then later on, as you were saying, Fabrice, you can sit down when you have time and, and, and do a, a daily mood log and, and do a good job of it. Well, since you mentioned mindfulness, uh, you know, I, I have to, to say publicly that I kind of uh, uh, depart from, from your cynicism. Um, I'm more of a skeptic than a cynic. And uh, I have, uh, you know, practiced mindfulness meditation myself. Um, although in, in my case, it, I have never reached that uh, euphoric state, uh, which some people do and makes me rather jealous. Um, but what I, what I do find uh, useful is uh, as a practice to, to get more and more um, accurate about pinpointing what's going on inside. And that's where I find it's, it's useful. 
Yes, mm -hmm. right. And it could also be useful. We were talking about on the Sunday hike uh, yesterday that uh, it's it's kind of a form of exposure too. Rather than running away from your feelings, you allow yourself to to feel the feelings. Yes, absolutely. That that's and that's when you discover that uh, emotions are are benign. You know, you can have the the worst anxiety or the worst depression. It's not going to kill you. Right. Right. If you don't well, run away from it, yeah. Well, that, that's a good digression. We'll see if people like it when we, when we digress. No, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that had nothing to do with the question. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's all arbitrary, right? As long as yeah. we're raising fun things to talk about. Yeah. Um, so uh, Abe is asking us, uh, what about negative thoughts uh, that are valid? For example, I was interested in astronomy and physics as a teenager but my SAT scores showed I had no aptitude for a career in these areas. And, and th this was a cool thought, and I'm, I'm hoping to get your input on it too. What, one thing I, I, I liked about it, it's not only a good thought from the point of view of team therapy or cognitive therapy, but it's, it's I had the same exact thing. When, it, when I was in college, I thought, you know, I'd sure be cool to major in uh, physics and, you know, astronomy. And I've always found that stuff so fascinating. But I had uh, two roommates who, who were majoring in physics. One was Phil Allen, who is now a solid-state physicist in uh, Stony Brook, New York. And the other was Joe Stiglitz, who has won two Nobel Prizes in economics. And they were so brilliant that I realized I, I couldn't be a physics major. I just didn't have that level of IQ. They were probably 50 IQ points above where I was at. So I just focused on, on something that, I've, that I had a good aptitude for and that was fun for me, and that was uh, philosophy. And, uh, and then that merged into a career kind of centered on psychology and psychotherapy and I've just loved my life and I've been so I'm so so blessed and I think one of the secrets of life is to to focus on on what you can do all the blessings that we have have around us rather than you know getting upset about what you can't do the whole idea behind cognitive therapy is it's not the facts of our lives but the way you think about it that creates suffering and when you're uh, suffering, it's always because of distorted thoughts, not because of realistic thoughts, like maybe telling yourself, oh, my gosh, I can't be happy without being a physicist or an astrophysicist, or, or I can't be happy without being a huge success in life, or I need love to, to be happy, or I need everyone's approval to feel happy and fulfilled. And when you convert your wants into needs or demands or shoulds, that, that's when... Uh, when a lot of uh, that's when the misery uh, begins begins to to uh, set in. And well, I, I think that it's good here to separate uh, facts from um, you know shoulds or needs because yeah. uh, uh, let's take something that's even more observable. Uh, let, let's say something that uh, could have had uh, an impact on somebody's uh, upbringing. And let's say a, a patient writes down on, on his mood journal, my father was never there. Yeah. And, and uh, you can verify that this was a father who was, you know, traveling three weeks out of the month, every, every time, every month. And uh, when he did get home, he was, you know, drunk as, you know, can be. 
And so you could say, well, yeah, it's true that his father was never there, pretty much. So we have a fact there. And uh, but you take two people with the same kind of father, one will be perfectly uh, happy and adjusted, and the other one will, will be totally depressed. The difference between those two people is one of them is thinking something along, along the lines of, my father should have been there. Yes, that's right. And I can't feel happy and fulfilled because I didn't have a, a kind of childhood that, yeah. that, that I wanted. Yeah, that, that's beautifully stated, uh, Fabrice. So I, I think that that's where the, the difference between an accurate negative thought is. Does, yeah. is do, you, do you believe that it ought to have been different? Yes, yes, that's right. And the, the, the facts on a daily mood log go up at the top, describe the upsetting event. The event is not what upsets you. It's the thoughts, your negative thoughts, your interpretation. Why is this upsetting to me? What, what am I telling myself? The woman that I was mentioning who had so-called postpartum depression, one, one of her thoughts was that uh, the one that she had a lot of trouble with, with two of them. And, but one, I think I can, I can safely reveal. She was very upset because, she, she, see, this was a very productive woman, a, 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 a beautiful, brilliant, creative woman who with a great a great career and now she's on maternity leave and uh, so she she's spending a lot of time just you know sitting around nursing the baby work work doing all all of these all of these things and one of her her thoughts was was that you know how can I be happy and fulfilled uh, you know, because I'm just sitting around at home doing nothing. And then we did the downward arrow technique and turned out she had two beliefs behind her, her misery. One is I must, I can't feel happy and fulfilled if I'm not being uh, super productive. And also I can't feel happy and fulfilled if I'm alone at home and, and not connecting with other people. And then when, when we challenged those two beliefs, she suddenly saw you know that that's not true. That that you know your worth as a human being depends on your productivity, and it's not true that that you can't be happy happy when when you're alone. So again, it it was the the self defeating beliefs and the distorted thoughts, not not the so called fact that was was creating the pain. And it was such a joy to to see her go from just really intense misery to 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 joy. I that's. I just love love it when that happens. And I'm glad you're, you're saying this. That makes a good point uh, for people who do find themselves in front of a, a thought that they, they can't uh, totally put the lie to is to do a downward arrow. Yeah, good and point. Just to remind people, downward arrow is where you ask, so what does that mean? Why is that making you upset? Why is that upsetting to me? And I also sometimes call the downward arrow technique the man from Mars. And I'll say to the patient, I imagine I'm from Mars. And why is it upsetting to you if you're home, you're with your baby, and and you're not, you know, doing important research, or you're not connecting with with friends? What does that mean to you? Why, is there something upsetting about that? And then you can get at these self-defeating beliefs under the under the surface. And then once you've got them. You can you can help the patient to challenge those beliefs and and then get get recovery. Uh, next one is from Kevin, who's asking, 
can positive flooding be used to change the object of our desires? For example, our sexual desires, like the man in one of your books who had lost sexual interest in his wife. Sadly, um, that was uh, something I had high hopes on for, and it didn't, it didn't really pan out. I, I think there are limits to the things about ourselves that, that we can change through cognitive, cognitive tech techniques. Uh, and uh, that, that was, that was a, that was a disappointment. Uh, the, uh, it looked for a while like it was working, and um, but in the long run, he had to take a very, very different approach to 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 the issue that was that was bothering him. And one of these days, I'm going to rewrite Intimate Connections. Angela Crum is going to help me with it. There's there's some things in there that I really want to change and update that book, and that's that that's that's one of them. For the most part, what has been really effective with people with sexual uh, fantasies and issues that, that are troubling to them has been not to, not to try to, to change them, but, but to accept them. Uh, a man came to me very troubled, a professional man, because he'd always been excited by, you know, when his mother was away, he'd put on her underwear and her clothing and, and get all sexually excited. and. Uh, and he was still kind of doing this now, like when his wife was away, you know, he would he would do the same thing. And he was all incredibly ashamed and and, and thinking that this showed that he was defective and abnormal and, 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 and perverted. Uh, and, and what was really effective for him was to to accept that, that this was sexually exciting to him and didn't mean he was any less of a human being. I don't think we know where our sexual desires and fantasies come from and and uh, it was just a revolutionary to him the idea that he could accept it and he eventually discussed it with his wife and she accepted it and and he he just re recovered from uh you know uh, years of shame and depression and anxiety and and feeling inferior where it gets tricky though and where it comes to the limit of my expertise which is somewhat limited in this in this area is as if you're the object of your sexual desire is something that is illegal or is going to involve hurting hurting other people, and and then you you may have to go with a tool like uh, Sex Addicts Anonymous, which functions a lot like Alcoholics Anonymous and can be, you know, tremendously tremendously helpful for for, for people. But just sometimes you have to view it as as an addiction and an unhealthy addiction and uh, and then just use abstinence plus you know the support of, of an AA type type group by the way this fellow Kevin had written us a beautiful endorsement and we get them all the time and and we almost never read them and I just thought I could read a little one paragraph endorsement he gave sure. us uh, he, he's the one who asked this incredibly important question and he, and he says, I, I tried to articulate my appreciation for all that you and Fabrice do in my first email. I would just like to reiterate how grateful I am to have you as a teacher. I keep the list of 10 cognitive distortions on my bureau and look at them every morning when I wake up. I apply the tools and insights from your work to my life every day. They're invaluable to me in my search for happiness. 
I do consider the insights of CBT, that's cognitive behavior therapy, to be one of the greatest contributions to the quality of human life of the modern age. I want to thank you for all you do and have done to make it possible for people to enjoy more fulfilling lives. And I can't thank bo you both enough for being so generous with your time in your responses to my inquiries. Um, so anyway, uh, isn't that a beautiful? It's, it's beautiful, and, and I'm very impressed that uh, Kevin is really taking his life into his own hands by you know, applying the tools, using them every day, and that's how people change. It's yeah, absolutely. Really putting it into practice. Yeah, yeah. The, you just can't lose if you put that, uh, that, that kind of hard work and energy into it. So I want to be sure that we, we fully answered his question other than uh, in the negative, uh, that is that you haven't um, seen a way to change people's uh, desires and particular sexual desires. But he's talking about positive flooding. And I'm not sure what he means by positive, but I'll, I'll venture a guess, which is uh, flooding with images that make you feel good rather than images that make you feel bad. Yes, and what this individual was doing was trying to substitute uh, sexual fantasies that, that were kind of of an unhealthy type yeah. and then have a sexual fantasy about his wife and to, see, to try to change his, the, the direction of his, of his se sexual flow, you might say. Yeah. It was a case where accepting his sexual desires was, was not going to be acceptable. Yeah. And it worked for a while, but then it then it wore off, and he, he eventually went to uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, and there he found the, the help that, that that he needed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, it it was a disappointment. Uh, you know, when cognitive therapy was new, when a form of therapy is new, you 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 hope that you can use it in ways you know that would be wonderful if it worked, but it, it unfortunately it just it fell short of the mark all right okay we have one last one here from valentina who wrote uh, where do cognitive distortions come from our parents our genes societal messages i feel like we had a, a similar question yeah. before but uh i think we uh, have let's answer this nonetheless yeah well i think you know there's two answers the first is we don't know, and anyone who claims to know is just a, a, a bullshit artist, that, that they're just saying things that sound good to an audience of people who want to hear them say those things. But there's good reason to, to believe that all of these things can contribute to, to, to our cognitive distortions. Uh, we, some people may be born with, uh, you know, certain tendency to depression, to, to anxiety, to, to thinking in a, in a pessimistic way, while others are born, you know, as optimists and they are confident around other people and they, they, they don't struggle with much de depression and anxiety. So I think genes can, can definitely be a huge part. And then you could be getting messages from your parents. Certainly that makes a big impact and can create beliefs. For example, the, the, uh, this nationalist, white nationalism movement that's uh, you know, anti-Jewish and, and anti-black 
and uh, that you know the, that there are these people who are in, inferior and who are bad. You, those are things that that we learn from from parents who had had similar views, and and so this it seems to me is proof that uh, you know parental, family, societal influences can can be intense as as well. And then in our perfectionism show, we were talking about the messages that oh, if you're winner, if you're number one, if you're perfect. You know, you'll have some kind of specialness about you that will in, in ensure a superior euphoric life. And, and we get those messages in, in television and advertising and the lives of sports heroes and entertainment figures who start earning these incredible $50, $100 million and, or, or more. Uh, but the, if you had a real database to, to test these series and see what, what the contribution is, it would, you, you might have some surprises. I, I don't know if I said this on a podcast, but when I was at Penn, I went to a presentation by a man who was, uh, it was a Grand Rounds in the Department of Psychiatry. It was this fellow who was presented to us as one of the top geneticists in the world. And he had just gotten a big grant from NIMH to, to look at the genetics of depression. And then he, he talked about all the reasons why it's next to impossible to do a meaningful study of the genetics of depression. And he said, the first thing you want to know if you want to know about the genetics of depression is to take every study on the genetics of depression that's been published in every language in the world, all the world literature, and uh, you can throw it all away because there's not one valid study that's ever been published on the genetics of depression. And then he explained why, and it was very convincing and very clear. And he wasn't saying there is no genetics of depression. He's just saying that the the current value of the current research is is rubbish. And then he was showing how they were going to try to solve some of these problems in the study he was about to to embark on. And, and so I, I just think the, the great news is wherever these cognitive distortions come from, we now, with, with, with team therapy, have some very powerful ways to help you change the way you feel, to go from despair, anxiety, insecurity, and thinking you're not good enough to, to real joy and, and, and self-acceptance. And to me, that's, that's just incredibly, incredibly good news. And that's well, enough for me. I don't need to tell people here's yeah. how you are the way well, you, are. you know. And and that's that's just like you, David. Uh, you know, you you go to to the heart of the matter. It's like, who cares where it comes from? Let's fix it. Yeah. But I'm I'm a little bit different. I, I kind of like to to have uh, some kind of explanation to hang my coat on. One that I I like has to do with uh, evolutionary psychology. If you if you have any familiarity with it, where our brain has evolved a negative bias, which seems to be the case when I look around me and when I look inside myself. The, the negative bias is explained uh, this way. Back in the day when uh, we were still uh, evolving on the plains of the Serengeti, you had the, the guy who said, uh, oh, there, there's a brown patch over there. Uh, it must be a lion. And run away and, and, uh, and hide. It uh, turned out to be just a, a patch of brown grass, but uh, this guy uh, survived to the next day. Where the next guy who saw something that kind of looked like a lion said, no, it's a patch of brown grass. And it turned out to be a lion. That one got eaten and did not pass his genes to us. 
So we got the genes of the ones who were always on the lookout for something bad to happen. That's right, and and that and that that's also uh, positive reframing in uh, team therapy is the exact same thing that the, the these things have evolved uh, be, because of their benefits to us. Uh, your your anxiety keep keeps you vigilant, protects you, protects you, protects your baby. There are things to to be afra- afraid of. Your your depression comes from your uh, high standards, which have actually allowed you to be more productive, uh, to to be to be more successful, uh, and, and that there there is a beautiful side to all of our. Uh, negative feelings, uh, and 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 then and, and then that's the same as the evolutionary thing. It just put in slightly different language that th- this is good, healthy stuff that we can be proud of. That it, this is helps us with our our survival and to become the the creatures that that, that we are. And then once you see it as something beautiful, uh, paradoxically, your your resistance disappears. Once you see your symptoms and your suffering not as a symptom of a brain disease or a brain disorder, but as a perfectly healthy and, and beautiful part of your, yourself. Uh, that that's, just makes an incredible rapid impact on people who are struggling and allow, allows for rapid re- recovery. Uh, and you see it too, like in our cats, our feral cats. My wife and I, as you know, Fabrice, and you're a cat guy too. We, we adopt and love these feral cats, but they they're very jumpy if they hear a loud sound because that's how they were surviving on their own in, in, in the woods. If, if they jump when they hear a sound, they get yeah. anxious. The panic, yeah. that allows them to escape from a bobcat or a rattlesnake or whatever predator they're, they're interacting with. Yeah, and it, it's true for them. They, do, they are exposed to predators. It's just that we are not anymore. Yeah, so we're, we're not. We have this uh, Stone Age brain uh, working in the modern world. Well, I don't know if uh, I, I would say it's uh, less safe to live in the United States than to live in the Stone Age. I would not say that, but uh, I'll send you to the Stone Age in my time machine, and you'll tell me what you think about it. Okay, well, I just won't maybe, go with you. <laughs> maybe you're okay. Okay, but if you're living in Chicago. Uh, you know, I'm just, I watched that show, The First 48, on TV about all these homicide investigations and just the murder rate in the United States is just massively high compared with all the rest of the world. But uh, that's a topic for another day. Yeah. Okay. And so thanks for answering all these questions. And uh, I want to ask our listeners to please keep sending them. This is, uh, you know, our bread and butter. And then also on the sound level, we apologize. We're doing this through Zoom, and we're buying new equipment, so soon we'll be able to get up to a high-quality audio again. So we're hoping you'll be patient with us while we're in this transition. Fabrice is a long way from my home, so that's why we're doing this through the, uh, th- through the Internet. But we'll, we're going to be using a different kind of recording devices, so we'll be able to have our, uh, the highest possible sound quality. All right. Well, thanks, David. Thank you, Fabrice. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information... Visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. 
theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donsel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. Thank you.